Welcome back to the program. Today it is technology that brings creative destruction into our lives. Silicon Valley sits at the epicenter of change. But in the 1960s and 70s, it was very different. It was art and ideas and personalities that changed the world. In the art world, it was New York and the Museum of Modern Art and its chief curator, Peter Sells, that sat at the epicenter of that change. My guest, Gabrielle Sells, grew up in that world. She watched how her father shaped the art world, and now she looks back at how that world shaped her in her new memoir, Unstill Life. Gabrielle Sells grew up in the New York art world and the bohemian world of Berkeley in the 1960s and 1970s. Her father was professor of art history at the University of California, Berkeley, and former chief curator of painting and sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. It is my pleasure to welcome Gabrielle Sells here to talk about Unstill Life, a daughter's memoir of art and love in the age of abstraction. Gabrielle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It is interesting to think of that world that you grew up in and the change and the kind of creative destruction that it involved at the time in the context of, of kind of the way we think about Silicon Valley today and the way we think about technology today. Today, that's sort of the center of what we think of in terms of change. In the 60s and 70s, New York and the art world was really the center of the universe as far as change was concerned. As far as change in the art world, right. yeah. I mean, I think the free speech movement started out here in Berkeley. And uh, so there was a lot going on on the West Coast, but it was not. Um, and there was a lot of art going on in the West Coast. And actually, some of the art that was going on out here was very irreverent of the whole New York school. But even this free speech movement and some of the things that happened later on the West Coast were in some ways, I suppose, driven by what had happened in the art world and the freedom of expression that really started to emerge there. Yeah. I, um, yes. Yes. I think you're right. Talk a little bit about growing up in that world and what you were aware of at the time, other than, of course, these larger-than-life personalities. I think we were really aware that um, that uh, our, my dad was very dynamic and restless and that things were always changing. He was married. He's on his fifth marriage, but his um, early marriages happened four in a row right after my mother um, very quickly. Um, and they were very short-lived. So I think it felt a lot like we were living on earthquake territory and that <laughs> things were always going to shake up and change. Um, so I think it was very unsteady. I also grew up in a household, at least when I visited the West Coast, where there really were no boundaries. And there were no, there were no doors on the walls. I mean, it was all open space. So just, you know, you had, you had access to everything, even as a child. And so I witnessed and saw a lot of stuff. Um, some of it was really exciting and interesting and fun, and some of it was probably too much for a child to participate in. And I write about that a lot in the book. One of the things you talk about with respect to your father's marriages and also the sense of his work and, and the adventure of it was this sense of possibility, this, this sense of right. embracing change. Tell us a little about that. Well, I think I always felt, and this is what, you know, I always came, always came back for more. Um, I always felt like I would arrive on his doorstep, and I never knew who was going to be there. Um, and so to me, it always just felt as if life was going to sort of burst into a symphony. Um, but it could be very dramatic and upsetting, too. So I think eventually, as I got older and I realized that, um, and quite a bit older because I stayed here a long time, um, that 
on some level, it was fascinating and engaging, but it wasn't my life or I couldn't, you know, I, I hadn't stepped into it yet. And if I stayed here, I would always be in some way or another an audience to it. Um, so I left. What was it like when you were there going to museums, going to places with, with your father and, and understanding, even at a relatively young age, so much about the art world? Yeah, I joke that I could tell my impressionists apart before I knew my ABCs, <laughs> <laughs> which is true. My dad took me to the galleries when I was three years old, and he would put me on his shoulders, and I could name all the modern art. I didn't really know Renaissance art, but I could name, you know, a Jackson Pollock. Um, I think that this was the way my father communicated, and so I engaged with art because that was the way I could get his attention, and that was the way he showed his, you know, if I knew something, that was the way he showed his appreciation for me, um, and it became our form of communication, and uh, and it was my access into his world. Um, I think my dad loved us, but I don't think my dad was always very good at entering our world, um, certainly a ch- child's world. Uh, so, so I stepped up into his, and uh, and that's what made it possible. And I really enjoy it. I mean, I never really, I, although I do think art sort of took center stage in our life, and the artists certainly took center stage, and the kids and the life was more background. I never really resented it because I always really liked the art, thrilling and interesting, and especially for a child. I mean, it was like stepping into a storybook. There also weren't a lot of other children around because most of the people in the art world, as you talk about it, were really consumed with their art. There was very little place for children. Yeah, yeah. We were the side dishes. The art was the main (laughs) course. Um, Now it's different. Now I think uh, it's easier for an artist to have um, a career and a life. Uh, But back then, I think it was much harder. First of all, I mean, if you were a woman artist, it was almost impossible you know, to, to, because women stay home and take care of the kids. And, and to do that and be an artist was really, really hard. Um, my mom actually was one of the people who helped change that because she got involved, and this was back in New York, with a building called Westbeth, which was um, the first and is now the oldest and largest artist housing project in the world. And the idea and the dream behind Westbeth was to give artists a place where they could um, work for relatively and live for relatively low in you know low low money it was very low income and um, they gave half the spaces to people with families so my mother would encourage all her artists female friends to have children because then she was on the board she would say then I can give you a bigger space <laughs> <laughs> so they all these women have come up to me since then and they have children who are now in their 30s and 40s and you know, they did it because my mother encouraged them to. So uh, it's kind of interesting. But, okay. yeah, we grew up with very few children in the art world. I, the Rothkos had children, and there was Lisa de Kooning, and, you know, Dory Ashton had kids. But there were very few, and I think the kids certainly suffered um, from a, a, a certain amount of neglect. One of the things that was there, though, was passion, passion, albeit for right. the work, and you talk about it a lot with respect to your father, the passion that he brought to his work. Right. My dad's very, very, very focused on his work, and, and he's very passionate, and he's very excited by it. You know, he gets very sparkly and engaged with it, and um, 
he's not an artist, but he cares so deeply about art. He cares very much about bringing it to life and bringing it, kind of bringing it into shore from the unknown waters and showing it to people. Uh, and I think also when he lectures, he, um, because he was there in the moment, you know, and he knew all these people, it's like touching a part of history that's still alive. Um, you know, so he really encaptures that sense of that sensibility that art is constantly changing and that it's always innovative. What is it that, that drove his passion? Was it getting the art out there? Was it the, the change that it had, the impact that it had on society? What was the driving passion for him? Um, I think probably he loved to be the first on the scene to discover something. Um, I think, I think uh, he had, well, he was, um, he came from Munich, came from a Jewish family in Munich, and the first, and his grandfather had introduced him to art, so he had um, this history of it with his grandfather. But he saw degenerate, the degenerate art show before he left, before he fled. And um, this was art that had been banned or destroyed by the Nazis. And so I think, in a way, it was this desire for um, salvation, to save something, to rescue it, to bring it to people's attention um, that he was always passionate about. And um, he had a good eye, and he was really interested not in you know the art of dead artists, but the art that was being created in the moment, which when he got his degree at Chicago, I think he was the first person. There were two people at the same time, my father and a man named Herschel Chip, who got degrees in um, contemporary or modern art history, uh, PhDs, and nobody had ever done that in America before. You know, they had had PhDs in art, but it was, it was older art. And um, so it was always, he was always interested in what was happening now, what was going on in the cafes, what people were talking about. Tell us a little about your mother. She embraced New York at first, loved the lifestyle there. Well, she was really resistant to move to New York because she was much more a reserved person, and she was shy. Um, and my father was the you know live wire. And um, but then she entered the art world and fast track, and uh, she wrote about it. Actually, that was the one thing that I really liked doing in my book was. Um, being able to access and incorporate all her journals because they were these um, excerpts from somebody actually in the moment describing the parties and the scenes. Um, and you can really feel this woman just so in love with the experience um, and dressing up and going out and meeting all these people and capturing the conversation. She would take a notepad with her wherever she went. Um, so she did. She really, really embraced it. She was a writer. She had a great ear for dialogue um, and really wonderful descriptions, um, elegant, elegant voice, uh, and an elegant woman. Um, so she loved it. And she, when my dad was ready to take off for the West Coast to, uh, you know, have a new adventure, um, she didn't want a new adventure. She wanted to stay where she felt like she was just beginning to establish herself as a writer. And so he moved west with someone else. When he moved west, how much <laughs> of that was, was wanderlust? How much of it was just wanting something new and different? Um, I think most of it, actually. In fact, I think he, he'll, he'll tell you that he felt like he could, had done what he could do at MoMA. And he had done, you know, 
I think, at least seven shows in seven years. And he did some major shows. He gave Roscoe his first retrospective. He did the Dubuffet show. He did the tingly, exploding machine in the Moma Sculpture Garden that almost burned down the museum. And almost ended did, his career there before it started. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he did New Images of Man, which people still talk about that show. But um, I think he was, he was, he's restless and he loves beginnings and he loves, and he has all that energy. And um, so I think it was Wonderlust. And I think it was also that museum work and the whole um, bureaucracy of that world was frustrating for for him. Now, he did come out here to start the Berkeley Museum and he, and he's a, he was the founding director of that, but I think the same thing eventually happened with the Berkeley Museum, which is that, you know, he's just not good at that kind of um, bureaucratic game playing that that a museum director needs to have. It's the startups that really holds the appeal for him. Yeah, and the startups with the marriages, too, (laughs) right? Right. Right. As in work, so in life. Talk about his relationship with so many of these artists and how he managed the competition between them, the egos of them, in his in his professional responsibilities. I think, oh, I mean, I, I, you know, he's very close to Christo still. When I had my book party last week in New York City, Christo came in, and uh, my dad was not able to attend because he wasn't feeling well. He's 95. But we were able to Skype him in, and a lot of the artists, who I had written about in the book came to to the party and you know in honor of me, but also to talk to my dad because he's 95 and they still are feel very connected to him because he was there at the beginning of their careers. I don't know if he really had to walk a delicate line between their egos. I I think my dad has a very big ego of his own. Um, so I you know I think he could definitely hold his own. Did he have favorites among the artists of the time? Oh, sure. And don't we all, right? Right. <laughs> um, but he was always interested in doing something else, you know, like if he did a, the Rothko show, right? Then he would want to do an artist who was, and Rothko wasn't figurative at that point. Um, those were all those beautiful color block paintings. Um, then he would want to do something that was figurative after that. And so it wasn't that he was switching alliances. It was that he was, you know, interested in showing different things. He wanted to show Art Nouveau for the first time in this country, even though it wasn't contemporary. He felt that Art Nouveau had an impact on modern art. He brought the first Rodin sculpture show over to um, America because Rodin was like, you know, you look at those Rodin sculptures and they're like moving off, off, you know, they're just in flight from, from, their, from their material. And my dad felt that that had a lot to do with what was happening in contemporary sculpture. So I think he, he, he wasn't switching alliances so much as just being engaged in different things and looking at different things and supporting different things. Mm-hmm. When you look at your relationship with your father as you write about it in Unstill Life, is it mm-hmm. possible to separate the father-daughter relationship from the art? In many ways, it seems no. that they are so powerfully intertwined. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think um, that's where we connect. Uh, my, you know, I, I think that I established a relationship and, a, and um, a strong relationship with my father by, by appreciating and being fascinated and interested in his world and the things that he liked. And it's become my world. Um, 
but uh, it's it's very much entwined. Art is part of an ongoing part of our conversation, and and um, and actually, what I was trying to do in the book was to incorporate the whole family story into the larger story of art and culture in the 20th century. Um, and not to separate it out, because it wasn't separated out for me. Just like my relationship with my mother was always about words and language um, and storytelling, my relationship with my father is very much a visual relationship. How does it impact your view of art and the art world today? Because in looking at, at art, it all must harken back to some of these youthful experiences. Well, the art world today is really different than it was. It's much, I mean, now we talk about a global world. It wasn't even a world, an art world when I was a kid. It was an art scene. There were a handful of people. Uh, and that started to change in the 70s and certainly in 80, the 80s when the market became such a prevalent part of it. But um, back then it wasn't driven by money in the same way as it is now. Um, I live in Southampton, Long Island, which uh, is two hours outside of New York and like the world I grew up in, it actually has a smaller art scene that gets very big during the summertime when all of New York descends, but then kind of you know shrinks back to its normal size. And, and uh, it's really nice. I like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I see all these connections, but when I go and venture out into the art world, I write about art um, that connect back to the stories I knew when I was a child, and it enriches the experience. Um, I like the story behind art. I, you know, I want, when I write about art, I want to incorporate what I know about the history of it and the history of the people who did it. How did your father feel about you writing this? My dad wanted me to write the book. (laughs) (laughs) My dad, well, I mean, it's a sort of a complicated story, but my dad many, many years ago, and this is actually what, what was my window into the book. Many years ago, in the 90s, he sat down with my mother. They had continued this love affair for 40 years, even after divorce. And they sat down together, and they made a series of tapes of their ringside in the art world. And she was going to write this memoir about it. And I think, you know, she sort of worked on it a little bit. And I think she was either too close or, you know, she either incorporated too much of him and not enough of her. It just never really gelled for her. And then she got um, Alzheimer's, and um, my dad came out to bid goodbye to her, this very powerful final goodbye. And um, I found these tapes up in the attic, and uh, my mother had expressive aphasia, which is the inability to retrieve language, so she could no longer talk. But when I played the tapes, I could hear her voice again, and I could hear my parents talking, and it was like I was a child, and I was listening to them in the living room, you know, talking about their world. Um, so I felt like I was pulled back in time. It was also very emotional for me because, obviously, my mother couldn't talk, and it was the only way I could hear her. Um, so it took me a long time of listening to those tapes. I would start to cry, and I would have to turn it off. And, and after about a year, um, I started to want to write about it and to write um, this beginning, this thing that she had started, uh, and my dad was very encouraging. He wanted a lot to have a lot of input, but he um, also was just willing to let me write whatever I needed to write. Uh, he loves attention, good and bad, so <laughs> I think it worked out well. 
Um, and he really likes the book. He read The Galley, and he's read The Hardback now. And he, we are doing two readings this week, or I'm doing the readings, but he's coming, and he'll participate in some of the Q&A. We're doing one at University Press Books tonight at, at 6, and then we're doing one at City Lights. I should say I'm doing one, and he'll be there right. <laughs> um, at 7 on Thursday. So, so it's really nice to have him participate. What were his ambitions for you? What did he want to see you do? Um, you know, that's a good question. I think my dad didn't, didn't want to see me struggle. So when I flirted with the idea of doing visual arts, he was not very encouraging because he knows how hard that is. Um, and even in the beginning when I left California, um, in my late 20s and wanted to become a writer and I moved to New York. He, he kept telling me how hard it was and how hard it was for my mother to do it and how, you know, slim the chances of success were. Um, and I don't think he was doing that for any other reason than he knew how difficult it was going to be. Uh, I think now he's really proud and happy, but I think, you know, he, had, he, he was not the greatest, most encouraging parent. He's not, he wasn't the most supportive parent of our dreams. Did he ever want to be an artist? He made a um, ceramic bunny when he was um, <laughs> in school. <laughs> and he recognized very early on that he did not have that kind of talent. Um, so I don't think so. I think he always wanted to get into the creative act, which is different. And I think that, um, you know, that with all the happenings and all the crazy stuff that was happening on the West Coast, that was an access into that kind of experience. Um, certainly when they opened the Berkeley Museum, they had some, you know, wild stuff going on. They had the Ann Halpern dancers rolling around naked on the floor. And then he did this um, per performance with William T. Wiley, who's actually having a really good show up in Sonoma right now. Um, the artist William T. Wiley, mm -hmm. they dressed up as cowboys and they walked into the new museum and they pulled out their toy guns and they went up to the front desk and they said, give us some art. And that was their performance. Um, so, yeah, I think my dad really did want to get into the creative act. And I think some of the crazy sex stuff that was going on in, in certainly the Bay Area at that time with, you know, like, happening or deed stuff were, were sort of like done under the banner of artistic expression. Gabrielle Sells, the book is Unstill Life, a daughter's memoir of art and love in the age of abstraction. Gabrielle, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 